0: While those are very nice things to say, we are a people who thirst for hope. And we are a people who long to give others hope, but it seems that often we don't have any clue what that is to look like or any clue what true hope is, especially when we meet people who have come into contact with the brokenness of this world or perhaps even the brokenness of their own soul at which time we find ourselves usually giving some kind of pat answer, some vague nicety or an empty platitude to try and at least stimulate some kind of good affection, some kind of beneficial emotional stimuli. Let me pause it before you. When it comes to hope, what if we, as believers in Jesus Christ, would look at the topic of hope and ask the question we have been called to ask since the scriptures were compounded and since God began to reveal himself through his word. What saith the scriptures? Where does true hope dwell? And how are we to set our hope this Advent season? And so if you could turn with me. As we approach this topic together in Psalm 130, I will read aloud, and if you are able and if you are willing, I would ask that you please stand in in honor of the reading of the Word. Uh, If you are not able, that is completely fine. Please do not. Um, But we're going to show in honor of the Lord and His Word that here lies truth, Psalm 130, a song of ascents. I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning more than watchman for the morning. O Israel hope in the Lord for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You may have a seat. As I, as I spent time thinking through this psalm in preparation for today, and I spent time studying it, I began to, to have a deep fostering and growing love for this psalm. And interestingly enough, as I began to study, I, I found that I wasn't alone. Some fun little details out there, that it has been said that Psalm 130 was actually a favorite psalm of Augustine one of the earliest and and most popular of the ancient church fathers. It's actually a favorite of Martin Luther as well, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation. It also tops the list of John Owen, John Calvin, and John Bunyan, all of whom were very influential theologians and men who are not only cherished in their day, but cherished yet still today as some of the leading theologians and soul shepherds that we've seen in history. John Owen was in fact so impacted by Psalm 130 that he actually sat down early in his ministry and he wrote a 320-page book dedicated just to this psalm in which he spent 75% of it focusing only on verse 4. I decided I wouldn't just read that today, though that was certainly my temptation, but as I did skim through this book, I became very grateful for the Lord's gift of His Word, because Psalm 130 is written in such a way that we are now, though thousands of years removed, we can drink of the hope that is found here. As fresh as when this outcry first rang out. And those who have gone before us, and those who will come long after us, we are all able to take hold of this word as God uses it to take hold of our hearts as a point of helpful context for Psalm 130. This is a, a, a psalm that we're going to have to set our lens with because it's, it's a very particular category of psalm. This is known as one of the penitent psalms, meaning that its main focus is actually on repentance. Not only is its main focus on repentance, but stylistically it's written in extremes. For this psalmist, there's no such thing as a lukewarm middle ground. He takes us from the most tragic depths of darkness to the highest airs of light possible. Psalm 130 is one of what Scripture calls the Psalms of Ascent. Now, this is a a category of of Psalms from Psalm 120 to, I believe, Psalm 134. And in this category, we see a total expression of human experience. John Calvin in his commentary on the Psalms of Ascent says, An anatomy of all the parts of the soul is found in the Psalms of Ascent. And he says that there is here not one emotion missing that if we looked into we could not see our own soul as if looking into a mirror. Now this can be true of all the Psalms in general, and yet we see it in this vivid color here in the Psalms of Ascent. Now, we don't exactly know why the Psalms of Ascent are called the Psalms of Ascent. Another translation would be the Psalms of Degrees. But there's kind of a general consensus of theologians' past where, in essence, we we believe that these were the main psalms that would be sung as the Jews or the Israelites would travel up or ascend the mount toward Israel to celebrate some of their annual feasts and festivals. It could be so that this was one of the very psalms that Christ sang as he traveled up to observe the various festivals. These were the psalms that were considered to be those that would help prepare the heart of man to draw near to God and treasure his presence. One author has commented that these psalms, the psalms of ascent, they guide us into the path of God-glorifying desires, God-magnifying emotions, and God-honoring Doesn't that sound like something that we might need as Christians? As we venture into this annual festival of the advent of our redemption. So, how might the Lord use this psalm to set our hearts in such a place that for Advent we might not merely be excited about the delight of warm fires, presents, and sweet family time, though all of those are indeed Dear and blessed things of this season. But how could this psalm help to set our hope where it belongs this Advent? Let us turn our eyes to how the psalmist tells us how to find true hope. And it begins with a cry. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. We begin by seeing where the psalmist finds himself this particular day. And he's in the depths. Now, scripture, uh, within depths in scripture, is not a, a good place to be, in case you may have guessed. This was a place that if you find yourself, you are here in utter agony. It's a place of isolation and torment. There are various, varying uses throughout the scriptures that use this word, the depths. And in some cases, like in Psalm 69.1, it speaks of being in the depths as a, a torment from wicked enemies who are onslaughting and making me a victim. The, the sons of Korah found themselves, as they wrote, the darkest psalm ever to be penned in scripture in Psalm 88. They found themselves in this very place of the depths. This was a place of horrors unknown, of crippling loneliness and utter fear. It was not until he sat in the crushing frigid depths that Jonah finally cried out to God rather than running away from him. This was indeed meant to convey a a deep and dark imagery, the imagery even of drowning. The imagery of the depths was one that would be terribly familiar to the Israelites because it would call their memory, it would call their understanding back to that fateful day when God sealed one lone man and his family within a great ark and wiped out in judgment almost all of mankind along with his wickedness. The place of the depths calls to mind the horrors of God's judgment on sinful man. And it's from here that our psalmist begins his ascent to the presence of God. It is from the depths that our psalmist begins to find true hope. What is it that we see him doing? As he wallows in the depths, he says simply, I cry to you. He's crying out. Now, This is pretty easy for us to wrap our heads around, right? When we think of someone who is beginning to drown, one of the thoughts that would closely be associated with that is a flailing, screaming person as they're thrashing about, fighting to stay above water. Crying out makes a whole lot of sense to one who finds themselves in the depths. One of the first things that they teach you, actually, when you're certi- being certified to be a lifeguard, is how to approach someone who's drowning. Because should this person be seeing the horrors of crushing blackness water, crushing black water beneath them, beckoning them down, and we swim up unwittingly, it could be very easy to find that we, even ourselves, are drowned as they seek thrashing. Thrashing and crying for air to pull themselves up by any means they can. So we understand, we can empathize with the psalmist here, can't we? To find oneself in the depths is almost synonymous to be one who is crying out. It's the logical end. All right. Should you take nothing else from this? should you get nothing from this point forward, might we be quick to remember that no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in, what a comfort it may one day be that whatever we did not do or could not do, we turn to the Lord in the midst of our trouble. And we cry out. If nothing else, through prayer we cling to a gentle buoy that keeps our eyes heavenward as billows crash. what does the psalmist cry out? He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. He cries out to be heard. Simply to be heard. He's drowning in the depths and he is crying out to God, not simply for the first time, but this is a habit. You see, he's crying out to be heard for what he's already cried out for. He does not seem to approach the Lord with much pomp or arrogance here, does he? Rather, this is a man pleading to be heard at the foot of one whom he knows he is unworthy to be heard by. Like that of a woman knocking at the door of a judge, begging for justice, yet we don't see the psalmist calling for justice in this case. He's heard pleading for something else. So what is it that he pleads for? Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We get a glimpse of what it was that thrust this psalmist into the depths in which he cries. He is the one that is actually crying out, not from external affliction, but in the same way as cried out in Psalm 88, 6-7, which says, You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. This, this psalmist is experiencing the horror of a broken conscience. A guilty soul in turmoil over his sin. And so this psalmist is sinking in the realization of his deserving of God's wrath. David says it this way in Psalm 32, 4a. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. See where the root of true hope is found for this psalmist. The seedling which sprouts hope for this psalmist is the utter understanding of his utter moral bankruptcy. It is that he stands guilty before God. He is indeed one who is poor in spirit. The waves and the breakers in which he drowns are a heart-wrenching awareness of his wicked intent and sin against the Lord God. And in this deep dark abyss of his guilt before God. He knows that he cannot save himself. He knows that no one is coming to his rescue. So he does what? He cries out. For what? Mercy. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, how about you come here, God, and we can start conversations about a ceasefire. You know what? Lord God, I, I think there are some things, key parts in my life that you may have missed where I was actually quite a good person and I think if only you knew them, if I had a chance to explain myself, then maybe it would sway your opinion of me. There's no bartering here. There is no question of compromise. There's no hesitation of really whether or not God even has the right To question his morality. Therefore the very first thing he does. Is he cries for mercy. The first move of this psalmist in finding hope. Is that he cries out. But what does he do next? He appeals. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The second action in this psalm then is right there in verse 4. As he's sinking into the abyss of God's judgment, the horrible wrath of the righteous God. He has tasted this fearful thing that it is to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet there's something that gives him confidence. Something to which he appeals. That gives him the belief that he indeed will be heard. That his pleas for mercy, though under waves of guilt and sin, will not fall under deaf ears. The psalmist appeals to God's forgiveness. But before that, before that, see what the psalmist calls to mind. Look to verse 3. What is it that takes place in the awareness of this psalmist before his appeal? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here what we see is that the psalmist begins his appeal with a realization of God's holiness his righteousness and his glorious set apartness he begins with God's righteousness before he gets to an appeal You see, he draws a connection between God's forgiveness in verse verse 4 and God's righteousness in verse 3. God's judgment in verse 3 with God's mercy in verse 4. Why? Why call this to mind before appealing? Because the psalmist understands that we cannot rightly appreciate God's forgiveness without perceiving it according to the pitch black backdrop of what our rebellious hearts truly deserve. He acknowledges what he deserves far before he appeals it. For God's forgiveness cannot be perceived rightly without an understanding of what someone is truly forgiven means. He paints this backdrop. He does this in three ways. Number one, his use of the Lord's name. Number two, he asks a hypothetical of what God could do. And third, he asks then a rhetorical question. See here the first move. He says, if you, O Lord. That word, O Lord, is actually the root of the name Yahweh. It's simply Yah. And then he moves on and he uses a second term for Lord, if you should, O oh Lord, Yah, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, Adonai, who could stand? Now, this is intentional. He uses these, uh, these two-sided aspects of the different names of God. This speaks, ultimately, to two different realities of who God is. This first word, Yah, it's the root name of Yahweh, and it speaks specifically to His eternal being his immutability, his over and above and beyond, this all-seeing, all-knowing, eternal God. He does not simply see our actions. Rather, this God knows every detail, everything down to the core and root of our desires and intentions. This is the all-knowing God. He sees each and every aspect of this psalmist's sin. But then he says, O O Lord, a second time. And he uses this name Adonai. This emphasizes his sovereignty and his authority. It's something similar to King, Lord, Judge. Not only is this God all-seeing and all-knowing, but he has true authority over all. He is the judge. What is his use here of these names? It is to leave the heart of man with a quivering understanding of who this Lord to whom he cries out is. Matthew Henry says this ought to intimate a very awful sense of God's glorious majesty and a dread of his wrath. He uses these names in the midst, though, of a hypothetical, a what-if question. What if God truly did what he was able to do? And he says this, if you should mark... Iniquities. Now, what does that mean? What does mark mean here? Well, it literally means preserve. It's the idea of God keeping an account. If only he were to preserve in his mind the fullness and entirety of all that I have done, paying mind and attention to all of my iniquities. If this Lord God who sees all would turn his eyes toward sinful man and marked or preserved all that he saw as deserving of wrath, if he kept a running count of my sin, this all-knowing, all-seeing ruler and judge over all were to pay every mark back, who could stand? If he preserved this, who could stand? The obvious presumption? No one. This is a confession. He's not looking about at the sinful world out there and saying, "If, if only they knew what was coming." No, who could stand is almost a, it's, it's this submissive understanding of even the best can't do it. What could I do? You see, this is a confession. He's looking at the Lord. He is seeing the depth of his atrocities against this all-knowing judge. And the psalmist knows that he could never diminish his sentence before this God, let alone stand trial. By way of summary, he cries, If even the greatest of men could not be steadfast before your watchful gaze, let alone live up to the requirements, O righteous majesty, then what would become of me who is so Utterly overwhelmed in my guilt before you. Don't miss this. Verse 4. But. Now we see how the righteousness of God connects to the appeal. We're primed now rightly to see this psalmist's predicament. He sees the Lord's glory, the righteous judgment of God against sinful man. And therefore, we are actually primed to understand the fullness of what is about to be said. We're about to be able to understand who God is in His very being. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So the appeal is made. To what does he appeal? It's the very nature, the very character, the person of God. He says, but with you, there is forgiveness. Some translate that forgiveness as propitiation. With you, there is propitiation. Now notice what he does not do here. He's not merely appealing to something that he knows that God does. He's not crying out that he has heard that this God is a forgiving God. And so he wants to petition him and therefore appeal to him in hopes of swaying his opinion. No, the psalmist says, but with you, there is forgiveness. His appeal is to the very nature of who the Lord is. The psalmist is perhaps thinking of Exodus 34, 6-7 as the Lord God reveals His glory to His servant Moses and He proclaims His name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There's something about the revelation of God that is stuck here in this psalmist's mind, that he knows. And not like the knowledge that Job had in in Job 42.5, where he had heard from the ear, but not yet seen from the heart of who this God is. He knows who the Lord is. He knows that God is not merely able to express mercy. He speaks with confidence in his wretched state, because he knows the God to whom he appeals is mercy he is wrath he is grace he is justice he is forgiveness the lord is not like man where he's segmented up into these differing warring desires and affections rather the lord god in his perfection is described merely as the definition of gracious He is forgiveness. The psalmist knows this God. And he cries out to be heard, because if only he is heard, he knows whom this God is. And with him is forgiveness. He cries out because he knows he can't stand. The glorious God who he cries out to, were he to try him. He knows that the Lord God is too magnanimous to stand before in his sin. And so he appeals to the very God, the very essential attributes of this Lord. He's describing who God is in his very essence and nature. You are forgiveness. He says, I could not stand steadfast under your scrutiny, but you are steadfast in forgiving mercy. And what is the end of such an unfathomable forgiveness? What does he say? That that you may be feared. True worship stems not from fear of punishment, but awe of forgiveness. True worship stems not from fear of punishment, but awe-struck wonder over the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness that is with the Lord, it is the radiance of His worthiness of worship to redeem sinners. John says it this way, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. He's saying simply this, that the fear of judgment can never produce in of itself worship. We see this in the psalmist. As God's breakers pour over him, and as he tastes of his deserving of God's just and ceaseless wrath. What does that fear produce? It produces a heart cry for mercy. Parents, have you ever wondered why no matter how faithfully you discipline your children, you can't turn them into God-fearing believers? It's because your discipline is never meant to make them good. It is to point them to their desperate need for mercy. Children, have you ever wondered that no matter how good and obedient you may be, you can never live up to the perfection you're called to. It's because you're not intended to be the one that is steadfast. You are to be turned toward the one who forgives. And out of a fear over this great and forgiving God, what springs forth Worship, awe over the forgiveness of God against such a wretch as I. As Pastor Jeff mentioned in the past few weeks, this fear, as we just read in John, it's it's not a fear of condemnation. It's a fear to lose the pleasure of God in whom I find such joy and pleasing. This is a desire to avoid God's displeasure and discipline in your life. You see, I have placed myself where God deserves to be on the throne of my life. I am full of self-love, full of self-esteem, full of self-glorification. I sit at the head of the kingdom of my heart and I have set myself where He belongs. But God, God in His word makes clear His revealing of who He is affirms that He ha- set Himself At the cross, where I deserve to be. He does not need to be coaxed or manipulated into forgiving. Rather, forgiveness and mercy were His idea, which flow from His nature, His very essence even through the blood spilled out of the veins of the perfect Lord Almighty. He has drained the gulfs of wrath, preserved, marked, reserved for me. I am instead hidden inside of His grace, marked out, reserved for His mercy. And now, in awe and wonder of this majestic King, so horribly and vilely attacked and assaulted by my sin, I stand steadfast, perfect, not ignored in His court, but forgiven in His presence. You see, God's forgiveness in Christ Jesus supersedes my sinfulness, God's merit eclipses my guilt, and God's righteousness hides my vileness. And what is it that this reality does in the heart of one who truly knows their Lord what his worthiness is and what my unworthiness is and what I have received in his forgiveness? What springs forth? Holy worship and fear. In awe of the God in whom is forgiveness. Great love springs out of great forgiveness. Now I fear to lose one look of his love. One, I fear to lose one word of his kindness. I fear to lose one touch of his fatherly tenderness. Where forgiveness is understood. Mercy is tasted. And grace experienced. There will by necessity be fear. I, I think we could all see a little bit. Why those who have been before us and gone to the Lord, have spilled oceans of ink on explaining and fleshing out a text like this. It's because it's words like this. Words like this that those who find themselves in the oceans of God's wrath due to their sin are captured from the depths and placed on the mercy rock that was struck for me. We could probably wrap it up right there. With a tidy little bow. But our psalmist doesn't. He continues on. Look to verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist then says, I wait. Now, hang on a minute there. What is there to wait for? He has confessed his sin. He cried out to God. He's basked in the glorious forgiveness of God. He's been forgiven, and he knows God's mercy towards him. So what is it then that he waits for? I will wait for the Lord. Ah. We see here a glimpse of what the heart of the psalmist is. The forgiveness he has received was never the end in mind that he was seeking. The forgiveness was a means to an end. What is it that this psalmist thirsts for? More than one who drowns in an ocean thirsts for air? The Lord. The presence. The intimacy the experiential and perceived presence and love of this majestic Lord God What is it that has thrown him in the depths in the first place His guilt before the Lord his knowledge of his distance from his father his dwelling in sin and the rebellion It was his perception of God gone from the soul that has thrown him in the pit in the first place. And now he cries out and he waits. He waits expectantly for the Lord to return. He waits expectantly for God's comforting presence, for God's comforting nourishment. Could it it be that some of us have gone days, weeks, months, or years in the wallows of the depths, finding no comfort, no intimacy, and no nearness to God. Could it be that the problem isn't the kids? The problem isn't that you're too busy at work? Could it be that the problem isn't some subjective emotional misalignment? Could it be that it's not that you've been burned by a church in the past. Could the psalmist be right? Could I be in such a spiritual darkness, such a wallow, such a spiritual drought, because the grace of God's mercy has thrown me into the depths that I might realize my sin and turn to Him? Confess. Walk in in repentance, and taste his mercy. The psalmist at last is where he ought to be. Oh, I will wait, he says, for the Lord. He waits in two ways. Two ways are his waiting. He waits confidently. This is not wishful thinking. Did you notice that? Because the authority to which he derives hope from is immovable. He says, it is in. His word, I hope. God has covenanted himself with me. He has made me his child. There is no question of what the outcome of my waiting will be. There are no grounds for confidence in mere wishful thinking. Hope, when described in scripture, is not something that I just want very badly or genuinely. Hope is the sure anticipation of what God has promised because of whose word the promise is from. Let me say this again. Hope is not desiring something a lot. It is the sure anticipation of what God has promised because of who promised it. He waits longingly. More than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. And the shift has grown long. The hours have been dark. A city guard stands atop a city wall overlooking the land surrounding the city where he waits for break of dawn. That the danger of nightfall will be no more. This is what the psalmist describes. He's waxing eloquent. He's posing a repetition that we might truly understand the depth of his longing. The visitation of God On high to lowly man below is worth all his agonizing wait. More than a watchman will wait, agonizingly long, for the sun to break the night sky. One might even say, He longs for God with us. More than a child looks for a father's embrace after they take a fall, He waits. Longingly. This brings us to our final movement of the psalm. We've seen our psalmist cry out. We've seen his appeal. We've seen him wait. And now we see him proclaim. He who began in the depths now having received such awe-striking forgiveness calls out to any who would listen to come and drink of the refreshing air found in the Lord. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Israel, he calls, the the covenant people of God, the people of God from all time, the true Israel, those who are anxiously expecting his coming. As the psalmist has first put his hope in the Lord, now he from experience of repentance calls all others to follow. Yet he doesn't just command us to hope in the Lord and leave it there, though he well could. But he is far too generous. Do you see, he actually gives us two motivations to do the same. One, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Two, With Him is plentiful redemption. Steadfast love. Unwavering, unchanging, independent from the object to which it is fixed. What does God's steadfast love mean? To summarize, it is that the Lord God is eternally, in Himself, perfectly in love with Himself. The Lord God is eternally in Himself, perfectly in love with Himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are ever and eternally perfectly one in love and in union with one another. He, by His very essence, has completely within Himself perfect love. Here is why that would elicit a psalmist to give this as a motivation. Why is God's love of himself enticing to sinners? Because we are a needy breed. We need love. We need love possibly more than other things, any other thing in the universe. And God being perfect in love with himself has absolutely no need for me. I am needy. He is not as I. He has absolutely no lack because of us, nor any other deficiency in himself to make him found wanting if we choose not to love or worship him. Here is why that's radically good news. His love does not depend on you. His self-sacrificial love is not dependent upon whether or not you really make him feel that he is the God he says he is. The love that pours out of the Trinity God is utterly steadfast. It's immovable. It has absolutely zero to do with you being worthy, you being worth it, you being good enough or measuring up. You can't measure up. That's why he did it. You aren't worthy. That's why he came to be the one worthy of all honor and all glory over all time. Oh, don't fall for the lie that tells you that we have a wimpy God who is in desperate need of your affection. Because that would make him a God made after our own image. If this is true, we have no steadfast love from him. For his love cannot be steadfast, for it is fixed on movable objects. Oh, in God, we have steadfast love. Our God is not like us. Plentiful redemption. This word plentiful, it means multiplying. He has redemption that is at a state of continual multiplication. It's the same idea that Paul uses in Romans five eighteen through 21, when he says, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This may be the wrong imagery, but the image that comes to mind for me is Hercules in his, myth, in his mythical fight against the beast Hydra. And there's Hercules, he's got his little stick, and he's smashing heads. And from each strike of this, Beasts' heads, two more spring forth. So also, in an unceasing multiplication of God's grace, His grace is sprung forth at the direct assault against Him. His redemption, it multiplies unceasingly. And this word redemption, it means simply this. It it speaks of a purchase. It's a buying of someone out of slavery into freedom. A buying someone out of slavery into freedom. Oskar Schindler is a German hero credited with saving something close to 1,200 Jews in occupied Poland during the Nazi reign in 1944. He purchased their freedom by paying the price and cost of captivity. This is a hero worthy of remembrance. Hear that. But his redemption was limited. In Christ, we do not merely have a potential redemption. Christ is not limited in his redeeming power. In the Lord, we have plentiful, abundant redemption redemption that will not go bankrupt, it will never be found lacking. Oh, in the abundance of God's wrath, the psalmist sees the abundance. Of God's mercy. Here is where we see our days of Advent. As they were meant to be. This this idea of redemption. Look to the book of Luke. Where this word of redemption. Finds a fulfillment. In Luke chapter 2. Verses 36 through 38. We meet an elderly widow. Who knew much about what it meant. To wait on the Lord. And to wait by putting her hope in him. In Luke he tells us that she was advanced in years. Having lived with her husband seven years before she was, or from when she was a virgin. Then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple. Worshipping with fasting and prayer night and day. When Simeon. A man waiting for the consolation of Israel. Had the blessing of being the blessed one to bless the blessed one. Christ. Simeon as he calls out the blessing over Christ. Luke tells us that Aunt Anna came up at that very hour and she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him, meaning Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. The very promise from Psalm 130. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Here is where we see that fulfilled. It is on the advent of Christ that we see fulfillment satisfied, that we see redemption poured out. Friends, when we celebrate Advent, we celebrate a long-awaited hope for the redemption that has already come, the plentiful redemption that the psalmist entices us with in order to draw our hearts to hope in the Lord, is found in Christ. The plentiful redep- redemption, this multiplication of graces, came to us as God's only Son, born for us. The one who can stand, even if the Lord were to mark all iniquities, the one is steadfast in love. His perfection satisfied the greatest critique of God's wrath. This psalm turns our hearts to repentance as it turns our eyes to forgiveness. It turns our hearts to fear as it turns our eyes to His glory and mercy. It turns our hearts to waiting as it turns our eyes to the risen Son and His promise to return again. For a second advent. It turns our hearts. To hope in the Lord. As it turns our eyes. To the God of steadfast love. The God of plentiful redemption. We are in a season of hope. Are we not? A time of celebrating hope. Yet. If you're anything like me, were the entire season of Christmas to go by. And you had the cookies, you had the warm fires, the joyful smiles, the brisk cool air, the family gatherings, laughter, a a house filled with ruckus of children or animals, whatever does it for you, the celebration, the sweet memories relived, the beautiful memories still made. You might just be able to love Christmas while it has absolutely nothing to do with the hope that Christmas is meant to actually bring. What is it that brings true hope from Psalm 130? This is true hope, that you, O man, whether you know it to be true or not, you will find yourself to be, when measured before God, in the depths, wallowing in guilt so great that its full comprehension can only be seen in the killing of the infinite, eternal, perfect Creator God of the universe. And when is it that we find such a grace, such an abundant redemption, here, it all begins here, at the lighting of a star, the ripping of a night sky into brilliant light, as the glory of heaven stepped down to bear the depth in which and from which we cry. This Advent, this Advent, would you join the psalmist? Would you join me, Would we find our hope where only true hope hope dwells? Not in positive thinking. Not in sweet kindnesses and gentle, gentle niceties. No. Would we find our hope that Christ, in His coming, is the abundant redemption of God. His forgiveness is from God. He is the very intimate presence of Yahweh God that is drawn near that we might stand in fear and worship of Him this Advent season. Put no hope in the candles, in the smiles, in the presents, the family gatherings. All of these are beautiful and blessed gifts. But all of them will fade into the distance for a soul buried in the depths. It will ring no true hope. Where we can find hope that stands steadfast is in the God is forgiveness. Be reminded of the mercy of God this Advent. Be reminded to walk in the confession and repentance of sin in fear of this forgiving God. Let us be those who sing from the heights the praises of their Redeemer and the cry from the depths of the one in whom forgiveness resides. As we look toward the arrival of Christ, be reminded that His arrival means our desperate need and His abundant provision. His birth shows our deserving of death. And take hope in this Lord, assured not only of His grace and forgiveness, but of His soon return. And may we go forth proclaiming as our forebrother here in Psalm 130, pardon calling all others to turn from their sin. Find hope in the Lord of glory, for in Him is plentiful redemption. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Lo, the incarnate God, ascended, pleads the merit of His blood, Venture on him. Venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. Father God, we thank you for Psalm 130 and the hope that begins with a cry. Lord, we thank you that you have come. You have come to show steadfast love, that you might draw us into the love that you have had with the Father since the dawn of your revealing of yourself. Lord God, would would you take our hearts this Advent season and would you draw us near to you as you have already drawn near to us. In your God with us. Lord God, would we wait? Would we wait and hope in your word? Lord, would we wait and find joy and hope not in the sweet pleasures you have granted to us this Advent? of temporal goods. But Lord, would we hope in the redemption found in Christ Jesus? The intimacy with you experienced as we walk in newness of life, redeemed from the depths day in and day out by your plentiful redemption. Oh Lord, Lord, would we wait for you? And oh, would we call all others, oh, hope in the Lord. This Christmas season. The one. Whom we'll redeem. From all. Our iniquities. We pray these things in Jesus's. Holy. And perfect. And beautiful name. Amen.